Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the clinical treatment of cases of possession. My guest is Nancy Tremont. She is the widow of the late Dr. Charles Tremont, who has previously been a guest twice on New Thinking Aloud. And she assisted him in his work, which did indeed involve uh, what some people might call depossession therapy. So, uh, she's going to describe that from her perspective. She is also the author of a fascinating book called Normal, Abnormal, or Paranormal. And I would like to, before we begin, link to the previous interviews with Dr. Charles Tremont. If you haven't already seen them, I think you will find them very relevant to our discussion today. Nancy lives in Arizona, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's a pleasure for me, too. I've known you quite a long time. I've known you since before you married Chuck, Dr. Tremont, who, with whom we've done previous interviews on this channel about the very work we're going to uh, talk about. You first met him when you were a student uh, of Raymond Moody's at the Consciousness Studies program that existed back in about 20 years ago at uh, UNLV. Yes under the direction of Dr. Raymond Moody. That's correct. And his teachings expanded my consciousness beyond belief, and for the better. <laughs> and that really, that course was largely the basis of your fascinating book, Normal, Abnormal, or Paranormal. That's correct. Well, along with my supporting experiences of events that Dr. Moody talked about in his lectures and his guest speakers mentioned in his lectures, too. Yes. In fact, I was at one time, I think before you enrolled, a guest speaker in that program. And that's where you met Dr. Tremont, whom you eventually married. That's correct, but I did hear you speak at Raymond Moody's oh. classes. Okay, so you were a student back then. It was a very momentous time. It would have been uh, the year, if I recall correctly, 2000. And in fact, I was there in October of 2000, and as a result of my visit, my wife and I decided to move to Las Vegas, which we did a, a few months later. Well, I quote you during that lecture in my book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the topics was cross-correspondence, I believe. It's, it's very interesting now that I think about it, because the lecture I gave then in the year 2000 was largely uh, the very same structure that I used for the essay 20-some uh, years later uh, for the uh, Bigelow Institute competition. Well, you'd been uh, accumulating a lot of research, 
having spoken with many authorities in various fields, and it was fascinating. After I moved to Las Vegas, I met Dr. Tremont, and I think I was involved with my friend John Alexander in introducing him to Raymond Moody, and then he got invited to lecture to the class, and uh, magical things happened for you as a result of that. And, and, and after you and uh, Chuck were married, uh, he began working with you in the therapy sessions, and that'll be the focus of our conversation. Very well. So wh why don't we talk about uh, how that began? How, yes. I, how I came to work with him. Well, earlier in around the year 2001, I began as a subject for the research he was doing on past life regression. He offered that for free to all the students in Raymond Moody's classes. So I was a, um, a difficult subject at first. I didn't really have any visualization until my third session with him. So I was a tough case. <laughs> Um, however, once I got going, it's like riding a bicycle. Uh, once you get the knack, uh, I took off like wildfire and had so much visualization and past, saw past lives, future lives, and even lives as entities and beings other than human. For instance, uh, a tree fairy was one of my one of my alternate lives that I saw. And uh, seeing the perspectives of those animals and semi-human robotic entities was mind-blowing and a lot of fun. Uh, I had a career in life insurance agency management, so I was working full-time until the middle of 2012. And in 2013, his assistant or surrogate spirit guide, whom he used to do dual hypnosis and remote hypnosis sessions, she resigned. And he asked if I would be willing to take her place. Let, now, let's talk about what her position involved. The, the, I think you said surrogate spirit guide. Surrogate, well, it, or they call them facilitators. Uh, it's kind of a channel or a receiver and transmitter function. And although I was very comfortable receiving information on myself under hypnosis, I was very apprehensive at the prospect of trying to interpret information for someone else. I didn't feel comfortable with that, didn't believe I could at all, at all. But I loved him and I wanted to help if I possibly could. So I said, why don't we hypnotize me and ask my subconscious mind what it thinks and see see how successful that might be that way. So we were amenable to that and I had imagery in that hypnosis session that led me to believe I could do it, that I would be comfortable to at least try. So I did 
and was comfortable with it and had imagery, not imaging, not visual imagery. I got information, but not imagery like I did in my own personal hypnosis sessions. It was a different experience. It came in a different way. Came in a different way, yes. But from the very first patient till the very last one, it came. And, and we're talking now, I think you've told me over well over 100. Over 400. Mm-hmm. Duals, yeah. Dual and remote hypnosis sessions. A dual session being one where I am lying down hypnotized next to the patient who had come in for a session and was unable to get their own spirit guide for my husband to talk to. So I would come in and he would talk to me uh, under hypnosis also about the patient who is lying next to me and ask me questions for for their benefit. And the remote is doing that process for someone who is not in the room or perhaps not even in our country, was not present, but who had given permission and requested the service, of course. And and were they also under hypnosis at the same time remotely? Not at all. No, no. But the people who were in the room with you, I assume, were. Yes. Now, to add another dimension to all of this, you were also experiencing it at one point, I think prior, uh, Kundalini experiences. Yes, yes. I haven't spoken with that very much at all, except to intimate family members, uh, because it's, it's so out there, so fringe, so remote from our cultural knowledge and experience in America. I didn't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable or think I was <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Well, sure, but for people who are involved in the field of consciousness and parapsychology, there's a large literature about uh, what people call kundalini from both a a Western psychiatric point of view and from uh, an Eastern spiritual point of view. That's true, and I've read several books about it, but I had not read any prior to being initiated three times. Uh, gradual. It was a gradual raising of consciousness, awareness, transformation of the way I think and value life and experiences, mistakes, especially that was helpful to see them as learning experiences, feel it as a learning experience, as opposed to the pain and the suffering, and the guilt, and all the negative emotions that are associated with it. So I I came across the word kundalini in a metaphysical book I had been reading one time, and it was mentioned as the awakening of the serpent energy. And I thought that was bizarre, but I tucked that little phrase back in the back of my mind, and didn't give it any further thought and didn't read about it at all. There were too many other things that interested me. There's so many facets to metaphysics. So I didn't pay any attention to that. Uh, I had 
some experiences with heat and conviction coming to me uh, when I most needed it and least expected it, very unexpected. And in an instant, I got the answers I needed or the conviction that I needed. And then, of course, I had the full-blown uh, initiation and awakening under hypnosis when I was going back with my husband to investigate a prior kundalini experience that I'd had, but I didn't know it was kundalini at the time. It was mystical to me and very meaningful and profound, but I did not understand what it was. So I wanted to go explore that with my subconscious. And I presume that experience, that very profound experience under hypnosis with your husband occurred prior to your working with him as an assistant in the therapeutic sessions. Yes, the prior two did, yes. And and you, as you've written about uh, in an article due to be published in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, having had the Kundalini experience... Uh, you think made you much more effective in working in this depossession context. It made it possible for me to do it, yes. Uh, now, I'm using the word depossession, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Chuck would have referred to the earlier uh, work known as spirit releasement therapy. Correct, correct. And he learned that from William Baldwin. Uh, yes. Quite by accident, when one of his earlier patients in about 2003 had an experience where Chuck was found himself talking with an entity who said that the patient wouldn't do what he wanted him to do, which led Chuck to investigate possession and entities because that apparently was not in his hypnosis training. He had medical hypnosis training in Ohio. So he investigated that, and there wasn't a whole lot of literature out, that on, out there on that, or at least he found what he was looking for in William Baldwin's book. Yeah, William Baldwin was, uh, as I remember, a dentist and a real pioneer in in this field. And another important pioneer in the field, I had the privilege of, if I remember correctly, introducing to you and Chuck was uh, Terry Palmer, who wrote The Science of Spirit Possession. That was published in 2014, which was a lot later than Chuck's experience in 2003 with one of his patients. And knowing that that could happen, and him feeling unprepared, I guess, at the time, he got a book and uh, learned about it from Dr. Baldwin. So, yes, by the time I had introduced him to Terry Palmer, he was already deeply steeped in, in this work. Yes, and I have very high respect for Dr. Palmer as well. His book is quite authoritative, very professional and informative. I liked him yeah. very much. Let's talk about some of the actual sessions that you had. Are you talking about my own personal hypnosis or my serving as the surrogate spirit guide, spirit guide for someone else? 
Yes, the surrogate. My first experience was for a young man who had autism. And he was brought in by his parent. He was not able to be hypnotized at all. He, he lay there quietly, but he was not hypnotized. His mother was in the room with us. And I'm sure she was hoping for healing for her son. What came to me in that experience was that he was there to teach her and others that he was made perfect. I don't know how the mother reacted to that. After our sessions, Dr. Tremont would speak privately with his patient or their families, and I would leave the room. And the content of the sessions is largely unknown or forgotten in my mind. I didn't, I didn't consciously remember almost all of the content of the sessions. So that looking at the files, his patient files, our patient files, after my husband had died, was an unusual experience for me and not quite an eye-opener. Oh, how interesting. So, and that's after each and every session, you didn't retain any recollection. I can't say I didn't retain any, but I retained very little. And I didn't really meet the patients very much. He had interviews with his patients first, and I, most of the time I was not there. Sometimes I was if they wanted me there. Uh, but... I wasn't there during the interview and I wasn't there during the summary. And I rather trained myself not to remember the content because I was afraid if I analyzed it, I'd feel guilty or questioning. It would just be a burden on me. What came through came through and I let go of it. I just let go of it. Well, and I imagine there was also a question of protecting the privacy of the patient. Uh, also, this is information that was personal to them and uh, not any of your business in your normal waking life. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. I didn't need to know. I, there's too much else going on up there anyway. <laughs> but I gather there were other cases in which, uh, unlike the autistic child who uh, was born perfect in, in your experience, uh, there were other cases where you uncovered spirit attachments or possessions in the patients. I would sense the presence of dark energy, yes. Yes. Um, one involved a patient who was hypnotized and had found her own spirit guide. And the spirit guide declare, declared that she was free of foreign energy. And she proceeded with her past life regression material until 
she saw herself in a life where she had killed someone and that person had reincarnated as an immediate family member. And at that point, an entity spoke to Dr. Tremont and said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And she started writhing and growling on the couch. Dr. Tremont's notes said she was doing this for a three full minutes, and that's when he came to get me and brought me into the session. When I walked into the room, I was fearful. This was an upsetting scene to see. But I laid down. I went into the hypnotized state. I'd learned how to hypnotize myself at that point. And the kundalini energy manifested. And I simply said, fear not, very strongly, over and over and over again, until we simply dominated that dark energy in that patient. And then we proceeded with the protocol to release that dark force from the woman and continued with the rest of the dual session. And that would be the same protocol uh, described by Dr. Baldwin. Exactly, yes. And, and can you summarize for our viewers what that was like? I will try. <laughs> uh, Dr. Tremont would inquire whether there was any foreign energy present and I would sense whether there was or there was not. And I would answer affirmatively or negatively. And most of the time, it was affirmatively. Most of the time, we found that foreign energy was affecting the patient, usually attached, sometimes hovering nearby, is the, is the terminology he used. And if there was foreign energy found on the patient, he would then ask, are there any dark forces attached? Because with the experience, like the one woman on the couch, we found that they can be imposters. She, that wasn't her spirit guide. That was the dark force acting as an imposter, according to Dr. Tremont. And William Baldwin spoke of that same phenomenon. So I have to go with that. If we found a dark force present, we would go through the protocol of releasing that. And that involved invoking warrior angels of light and the legions of heaven, the celestial entities that Dr. Baldwin wrote about in his book. We asked them to be present and surround and protect us and the patient and called in the warrior angels of light, or I'm sorry, the rescue spirits of light to encapsulate the dark force. So first we had protection, then we called in the rescue spirits of light to encapsulate this dark force that was on the patient and sometimes that happened rather quickly, and sometimes it took a while. If it took too long, 
Dr. Tremont would ask for legions of heaven to come in and help or, or archangels, other entities in the celestial hierarchy. Um, after the entity was encapsulated, I, that came through me. I felt like it had been encapsulated. Then Michael the Archangel or Saint Michael the Archangel, depending upon one's belief system, and we all have different beliefs. He, he was asked to come in and sever the dark force from the patient and take it to its destination. And then Dr. Tremont would ask me when that was done. And I confirmed when I felt it was done. The conviction that accompanied this energy is what made it possible for me to do these sessions. And my conscious mind would not have been there to do it. It couldn't have done that. Right. The conscious mind would probably be quibbling about, is this real or not? For starters, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Judging. The but, conscious mind mm -hmm. judges. The, my, the energy, Kundalini energy, doesn't judge. You were, used the word conviction or, or certainty. There was a, a positive knowingness ab about it. Gnosis, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That came from a source, I, I can only say beyond my, certainly beyond my conscious mind. Awesome. Awesome experience, mm -hmm. humbling, privilege. It was the most fulfilling activity of my life, meaningful to me. And as a result of that, you witnessed, or, or did you witness changes in the patients? Did you have the opportunity to see them again or follow up in any way? Several years later, after my husband had died, which was in November of 2021, after this call for papers on the darker side of spirituality came from the Society of Scientific Exploration, I saw that as my opportunity to write about my work with Chuck Tremont, which was a privilege. And in the course of preparing that paper, I called this woman and some other patients to ask what benefit, if any, they had perceived from their experience with Chuck Tremont. And she said that she had experienced relief from migraine headaches and uh, panic attacks. She was in charge of her life and that the most meaningful part of the experience was getting rid of that dark force. And I believe she's doing spirit releasements on other people now. In fact, three of the people I called were doing that. Oh, that's very interesting. And out of about a dozen, 10 or 12 people that I, patients whom I reached out to and spoke with, and uh, did they all report positive results to you? Uh, one, I recall, did not. But it's because the patient herself had dementia 
and was unable to be hypnotized. She was brought in by her daughter, who was an adult, her caregiver. Um, the woman had lost something like 60 pounds in the last couple of months, in the prior couple of months. And this was seven years earlier, or uh, seven years ago, before I made the phone call to the daughter. And the daughter said, no, she had not perceived any improvement in her mother's dementia. But the fact that the mother was still alive after having lost such a great amount of weight indicates that maybe we helped in some way. The mother also did not speak English, which would have been... So the patient herself... The patient herself was not hypnotized. In cases where uh, the spirit releasement didn't occur, were there other processes that you engaged in? There were no. There was no foreign energy attached. Is that the question? That that is the question. Yes, and by foreign energy, I think you're making a distinction between attachments that may be due to karmic relationships from past lives, for example, as opposed to dark energy. I did some past life regressions for people. Yes, in prior lives. Yes. So you were able to assist in that as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. In other words, while in trance, you could identify past lives for patients who weren't able to access their own. That's correct. That's correct. And I would expound, except I don't recall what they were. But I'm under the impression from having read, actually in particular, the Brazilian spiritist literature, where these practices are very common, uh, that sometimes one develops attachments based on past lives. Uh, you mentioned the case of a woman who had uh, murdered someone uh, in a past life, and then that spirit was reborn into the family. Yes. But sometimes various uh, relationships from past lives form other spirit attachments uh, similar to the dark forces, but they're not necessarily uh, negative. I'm, I'm unclear as to what you're asking me. Well, I guess I'm just recounting things that I've read in the spiritist literature. Have you encountered, as you call it, foreign entities that were not dark? energies. Yes, yes. Uh, I encountered earthbound spirits who we considered to be the spirit or soul of a person who had died, a, a living human being who had died, who did not go to the light, but chose to remain in the earth plane in a different dimension, unperceived by the patient, for most people, but affecting that patient positively or negatively, an earthbound spirit. And when it was, certainly when it was negative, we would, in fact, with earthbounds, we would try to send them on their way to the light so that that soul could continue to reincarnate and grow and do what it needed to do. And another entity that we found were called mind fragments. 
which occur when a traumatic cause, a traumatic event causes someone to split off a part of their awareness, part of their mind, and join someone else. And that hurts two people because it drains energy from the person it attaches to and the host soul. This is off of a living person. The host soul, or not the host, the original owner of the soul who was fragmented, uh, is not a complete soul. And although I can't say I perceive too many fragments and couldn't really describe that too much in detail, I have found an experience in my own life which supports that theory of the existence of mind fragments. And that is that I have had two experiences that I've become aware of in which I blocked out a memory. And I mean blocked out a memory without intending to, without intending to, but they were so very traumatic for me at the time that probably as a self-defense mechanism, my consciousness just deleted that from the vault of my conscious mind. But later, I recalled the events and was horrified until I learned through the Kundalini energy that they're all learning experiences and I can remember the event, but I no longer experience the pain. And that is a huge benefit. So in other words, until you were able to remember the event, would you say that you were uh, the victim of soul fragmentation? Yes, I, I saw myself Chuck had asked me when I was hypnotized somewhere later, maybe 2014, 2015, uh, under one of my personal sessions, he asked me if I had foreign energy attached or if I had been fragmented. And yes, I could see that I had been fragmented. And then he would have me bring the, the fragments back to my host soul, myself, the original owner, uh, use, using etheric silver cords is how it was put by Dr. Baldwin and Chuck Tremont. Well, it sounds like it was all in all a very rich experience involving possession, past lives, uh, fragmentation. Now, I have heard reports from other therapists working in this arena that occasionally you also run into, and I think you alluded to it briefly, non-human entities, possibly of extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional origin or uh, part of some spiritual realm or another. And I imagine you encountered uh, some of these as well. More often than you would think. Yes, yes, and Dr. Tremont would ask what the purpose of that influence was, whether it was attached or not, and then in other cases when they weren't attached, they would be hovering nearby, and when they were attached, we went through the depossession protocols, 
and got rid of them. Sometimes they were unwilling to leave the patient. And when that happened, it was due to a dark force attached to the extraterrestrial. So we would go through the protocol of removing the dark forces from the extraterrestrial, then communicate with the extraterrestrial and convince it it was in his best interest, in the patient's best interest for him to disconnect and leave, and he did. He, she, it did. It did. So, in, in other words, an attaching spirit, either a discarnate human spirit or a non-human spirit, could also have its own attachments. And you may, you may have to work through those. Yes. So, there can be many layers. Or, or, or you could think of it as nested spirits within spirits within spirits. Yeah. On occasion, I saw angels hovering nearby for protective, for benevolent purposes. And those were not removed. <laughs> if they were there helping the patient or protecting the patient, we saw need, no need to remove them. Now, I know that uh, Chuck referred to the work he did as a form of Gnostic healing. And uh, my understanding of the Gnostic approach is that uh, there is a universe of good and evil. There is ultimate good, there is ultimate evil, and various grades in between. So you're drawing upon the forces of uh, the higher forces of goodness in order to address the dark energies. That's correct. I think I would agree with that. As opposed to a universe in which nothing is meaningful and uh, or nothing means anything, everything is relative. I'm going to abstain from a decision on that. I, I would say um, still thinking about that answer. Well, it's a deep philosophical question. It, it, it is. It is. And maybe my mind just hasn't gotten that quite that deep to have a conviction on that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, my conscious mind, curiously, does not entertain demonic forces. It doesn't disbelieve in them, but I don't think about it. It's just not where my mind goes. My conscious mind, it never did, and it still doesn't. It, it's more aware of the existence of dark forces. But dark force energy makes people carry out their agendas, whatever it is. It's human beings that I attribute evil to. That, that's my personal belief. People commit evil acts. In, in other words, I think what you're saying is that this particular form of therapy can be effective regardless of your belief system. Yes, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Dr. Baldwin spoke of dark forces and powerful dark forces throughout his book, and I have not read the whole book. It's like an encyclopedia, like your Roots of Consciousness book. You don't just sit down and read it from cover to cover. It's got so much in it, wealth of information. Um, but 
the pages that I did read of Dr. Baldwin's book, which I never picked up until after Chuck had died. I didn't look at that book. Um, he spoke of a distinction between dark forces and powerful dark forces. After Chuck had died and I was researching this year, I tried to find out his distinction between the two. And he simply said that the powerful ones were higher in the celestial hierarchy, which doesn't really define it too well. What came to me in the hypnotized state, working with Chuck on the behalf of other people, was that dark forces make the patient suffer. Powerful dark forces make the patient do actions, perform actions, or say words which causes suffering in others also. Well, that's a very interesting distinction. It came to me. What can I, I, that's all I can say is it's a gift. It was given to me. Well, I would imagine one might find the same thing with the forces of goodness. I think that's accurate. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. I know that in, in the various schools of angelology and demonology, it's almost as if one is, the, they're symmetrical. There's like one is the mirror image of the other, although it does seem that the forces of goodness are, are, are slightly more at an advantage. Let's hope so. <laughs> For humanity's benefit, let's hope so. I hope so too, Nancy. Well, what a pleasure it has been to talk to you today. Thank you, Nancy, so much for being with me. You're very welcome. It was my privilege and I enjoyed it too. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.